Well, it's time to talk to our first guest this morning. And our first guest joins us from Oakville, Ontario. He is the National uh, North American Affairs Manager for the Consumers Choice Center. He is David Clement, and he's written uh, extensively lately about the restaurant business. And uh, interestingly, those two most recent articles have, uh, well, one set talks about what to do or what ideas might work, and another article talks about ideas that absolutely do not not work. David Clement, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. First a free lunch and then a freed up lunch. This is the one that worked. We'll get to the ban on booze in South Africa in a few minutes. A complete disaster, uh, which we'd not recommend emulating here in Canada. But let's talk about what the Brits have done, David, as Canadian restaurateurs and people in our industry, over a million of them, look mm-hmm. about, in many, in many cases, quite desperately for solutions to the problem of getting people, getting Canadians, diners, confident enough to go back out and dine out with their friends. The Brits had a, a kind of a, an interesting twist to the plot. Tell us about it, David, please. Yes. So um, in Canada, just to quickly highlight how dire the situation could be. Um, so about 30% of restaurants can't turn a profit in the current situation. And 60% of them are on the verge of closing permanently if we don't change that, um, if we don't have any tr- trend change in the next 90 days. Sadly true. So things are, yeah, so so the clock is ticking. Mm-hmm. Um, the UK went through something similar. They created a campaign called Eat Out to Help Out, and it subsidized uh, 50% of meals, uh, up to 10 pounds, um, on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. And they, the whole concept was the government will provide some sort of assistance by um, essentially nudging people back to restaurants, back to patios and things like that by offering them some kind of financial um, carrot to help them make, uh, help them feel a little more comfortable. How did that and, work? How did that work, David? And just explain the concept a little bit. So they offer you say, now let's, let's round it off to say $15 Canadian. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, so would you, would you go, work. could you go to a restaurant and order, uh, say uh, a $20 meal, the first 15 of which is subsidized. So that's only going to cost you five bucks. So it would be half. So if you sat down and you ordered a $20 meal, you would get uh, $10 off. If you'd ordered a $30 meal, you would get $15 okay. off. Okay. If you ordered a $40 meal, you'd still only get $15 off. So they did have a cap right. of, of, of the amount. And uh, it did, at least from uh, first observation, it looks like it actually worked. Um, there were about 65 million meals um, that were claimed under this program in about a month. Um, so that's a tremendous figure. Mm-hmm. And what makes this interesting is that restaurants are now considering honoring the discount, even though the government is going to be withdrawing this assistance. So how did so how, we could, how, how did the billing work? Uh, I'm just, again, I'm just mm-hmm. on, a, on a purely practical basis. I go to lunch and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to pay half of my tab. So I, I end up the tabs 30 bucks. I pay 15 to my server. Does the mm-hmm. restaurant then bill the government for the balance and then they, they pay and uh, yep. deposit the money? Is that how it worked? Yeah, exactly. The restaurant submits its receipts for the Monday applicable days, which are Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Right. And then they get those funds via subsidy from the government. Okay. So 
you you get your bill and you can see the total of what it would have been, and then you see minus the the amount that's taken off uh, via the the eat out to help out campaign, and then you pay your bill and go on with your day. So this is for Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, and sixty five million diners said okay. Yes, sixty five million people. Uh, or 65 million meals. Um, I, I assume there could be people having multiple meals. Oh, sure. Uh, um, use this program. And so it seems to, to have worked. And what I recently wrote uh, for the Financial Post was looking at this question of, well, if we're, if we're going to nudge people back to restaurants, I think that there are things that we need to do to make restaurants fun again. Okay. And I say that because... When we talk about assisting an industry, there are essentially two ways the government can do it. They can give an industry money or they can get out of the way. Um, I think the UK has shown that there is room to maybe financially assist and provide some subsidies. But I also argue that if we're going to do that, the government should take care of the second half of that equation as well and get out of the way so that restaurants can be more profitable so that there can be more competition and so that restaurants can better serve the interests of consumers. Okay, so now, and, and I couldn't agree more, by the way, and I have a son who's a chef, by the way, I should, uh, full disclosure here, David, his restaurant closed in March. It is mm-hmm. not going to reopen. That adventure is over. And uh, so now, and now, uh, like many of his peers, and he's been in the business for quite some time, and he's very good. I should weigh about 350 pounds because he's living with us during this, and I don't, but only because I have a dog. But I watch him being so incredibly frustrated. He's gifted, he's talented, and there's mm-hmm. nowhere, nowhere to go to work. So he is, uh, along with his, his peers, he's networking like crazy. They're doing everything they can. And one of the ways governments here have actually managed to get out of the way in a government support kind of way is to fast track patios. Now, I know it's a temporary solution and we're, we're it was the end of summer is only a matter of weeks away and it rains a lot here. You may have heard. Uh, but nonetheless, it's been it's been pretty successful during the opening of the patio season. It rained for nine straight weekends, but that's over. And cities, not just the city of Vancouver, but all the municipalities in the lower mainland, David, were really on side with getting patio spaces created really quickly for restaurants recognizing mm-hmm. the desperate straits they were in. So in terms of getting out of the way, government actually got in the way a little bit by facilitating things quickly. That was the rare part. It got done so quickly. But back to your point, how do governments, in, in addition to expediting things like patios, uh, mm-hmm. how, do, how do governments, know, what's the right thing to know to do when to step the heck out of the way? Yes, I think you raise a good point about patios. Um, that was similar in Ontario as well. The expansion of patios uh, happened, it seemed like it was overnight. Um, I totally agree with Vancouver's approach there and Toronto's approach and all of the other major cities who have expanded those patios. Mm-hmm. And I hope that when we come back to restaurants next summer, when it's not cold, um, that some of those larger extended patios are, are here permanently. Yeah. Um, outside of that, there are a couple things that I'd point out Um, that I think the government should do. So first on alcohol policy, I think that the government should get rid of minimum pricing on alcohol. So that's the the minimum price that um, that restaurants are allowed, or that minimum price that they have to charge for uh, alcoholic beverages. I argue that we should get rid of 
um, the liquor control board as a middleman. So I don't think that restaurants need to operate through the liquor control board in order to get wine. Mm -hmm. If there's a restaurant in Vancouver and they want to order wine from a winery in Kelowna, it seems silly to me that they can't just get on the phone and order that wine uh, directly. Surely the government is still going to be the regulator in terms of safety, but I don't really have concerns about that type of uh, relationship. And so uh, get rid of some of the overhead and burdensome costs um, and price issues that happen when we have the Liquor Control Board as a, as a middleman. Joined on the line from near Toronto in Oakville, Ontario by David Clement. Mr. Clement is the North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Centre who wrote a piece in the Financial Post the other day called First a Free Lunch, then a Freed Up Lunch. If we're going to nudge people back to restaurants, let's make the food service industry fun again. David, you, you mentioned just before going to the news break that one of the things policymakers across Canada can do is eliminate the middleman for restaurants mm-hmm. uh, in in the because of course they have to buy all of their booze from the liquor control board and of course the government taxes get paid there which means that there's a, a, a pretty high rate going in for the consumer and we all know that restaurants basically on a bottle of wine for example will double the price whatever they're charged so if they're charged less so will the diner but how do you cure the government of its tax addiction problem david that that is a very good question i think if if legislators are in victoria were skeptical about removing the liquor control board as the as the middleman i think they have to ask themselves the question of where is it where would it be better to lose revenue from um to would it be better to lose revenue from removing the control board as the middleman or would it be better to have 60% 60% of the province's restaurants close permanently mm-hmm. and then have all of those people go on uh, forms of assistance, whether that's EI or CERB, if that gets extended and other benefits and things like that. And so um, it's, it's, I, it, we certainly do see governments be hesitant to withdraw themselves from uh, different mechanisms where they can add their own margin and taxes. But sure. what I would point out is that my second suggestion actually does address some of this because it adds a whole new product class to what restaurants can offer their customers. Okay. And so I would argue that if they're, if they're worried about losing revenue um, because of changes in alcohol policy, they could forecast some additional revenue by adding legal cannabis edibles and beverages into what licensed restaurants can offer their consumers. Uh-huh. And so there's another revenue stream if we allow for restaurants to serve edibles and beverages. Uh, I make the argument that if I can go into a restaurant and I can get a vodka soda or I can get a beer, certainly I should be able to get a cannabis beverage. Uh, And the real benefit here for restaurants, if we're talking about giving them a a breath of of life to maybe help them survive, Mm -hmm. is that this opens them up to a new demographic who has never had a, a legal commercial space to consume their preferred product. True. There is no such thing um, as a, yet uh, for, for those folks who prefer cannabis products to go and consume um, cannabis products. And so you make restaurants now open to those folks and you start to see more foot traffic from people who weren't necessarily uh, going to these establishments and you start to offer them products that they prefer over, let's say, beer or wine. And so 
Uh, I think that that is another important step in making the food service industry fun again. No, it is, and it's, it certainly opens the door, as you just pointed out, David, to a whole new crowd that may not be too keen on going out the old-school dining way. Uh, but, you know, mm-hmm. now if it's more fun and they've got stuff... And what is the, what are the regulations? I don't know whether you know this or not. I'm just a curiosity question. What are the regulations in Ontario, where you are, uh, with respect to a, 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 a cannabis restaurant? In other words, uh, chefs everywhere uh, use bottles and bottles of wine in their gravies and sauces and mixes mm-hmm. and so on and that's perfectly legal is it also legal to use cannabis additives when preparing food or is that still considered kind of risque so i would argue that it should be legal um you could create a certification program for uh, the culinary uh, sector so that they know you know that they know what they're doing right you don't want you don't want anybody just adding things to um, different dishes. Unfortunately, because of really, really silly federal regulations, that's actually not feasible because the product has to be given to consumers in its child-proof packaging. Oh, I see. You can, okay. only, you can only give them finished products. Now, that's not a problem for edibles and beverages in restaurants. So you can still have a server bring you your, your cannabis beverage like they would bring you uh, a, a bottle of beer. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, I argue for that. I would argue to get rid of those federal regulations, but that is um, getting into the, the very nitty gritty of, of some of the silly policies in the Cannabis Act. Right. Okay. But let's stay at the federal level for just another moment or two. And again, this is the mm-hmm. overhead factor. This is the, the, these are the costs that Canadian restaurants are struggling with. There's the rent, there's the salaries, there's the keeping the place clean, there's the cost of the food and all of the ingredients. Uh, and then mm-hmm. that, then there's also the, well, let's just talk about the federal notion and that the very much made in Canada uh, supply management uh, policy. Mm-hmm which protects the Canadian dairy industry. Uh, Less than 15,000 dairy farmers in Ontario and Quebec call the shots for 35 million Canadian consumers with the blessing of the government of Canada. And this is costly for all of us, David. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is, I think, a really important long-term change. So supply management, for those who who haven't heard of it, is essentially government protection for dairy, egg, turkey, and chicken farmers. Yes. And this isn't the type of protection that beef farmers or any other farmers get. This is unique to them. Mm-hmm. They're a very powerful political lobby, and they've lobbied successfully to maintain this really silly program. And so what happens when you basically insulate the, those sectors from all competition and you apply heavy, heavy tariffs to imports of, of goods, let's say milk from New Zealand or what have you, mm-hmm. um, we basically get forced to only consume those products because the prices on other products are so high, and then we see domestic prices rise. And so some economists have looked at what the costs of that are on an individual or family basis, and it's about $500 per year per family, which actually pushes over 100,000 Canadians under the poverty line. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk about supply management and restaurants, I mean, those are some very important inputs for restaurants. I mean, chicken is a staple, dairy, eggs. Um, those are things that go into so many dishes, whether whether it's the main or it's added in uh, to make sauces and things like that. And so if we were to get rid of supply management uh, and allow for more competition 
in those industries, like we do for beef, mm-hmm. um, we would see a significant reduction in costs for restaurants. Their, their input costs would go down, and we would probably see some more competition on the prices that consumers pay, which is always important because if we want to have people back at restaurants, we have to ensure that what they're going back to is engaging and the prices are competitive and it makes them want to keep coming back. And so I, I argue that long-term we need to get rid of supply management. Um, for individual consumers, it's great policy, but it's also great policy for the food service industry who uses all of these items in their kind of everyday cooking. And so by way of summarizing, it's, it's, it's important to note that this is only going to succeed if governments at all levels, local, provincial, mm-hmm. and indeed federal, recognize the state of the industry uh, and, and collaborate and collectively to come up with a solution. And by and I only got a minute left, but I've been saving the best for last, because in terms of solutions, let's hope no genius decides to come up with what South Africa has done. You've written a fair bit about this. Tell our listeners here on the West Coast what they did in South Africa and what a disaster it's been. Yes. Uh, so South Africa uh, essentially went into lockdown and recreated prohibition. So the purchase of alcohol and actually tobacco as well was completely banned. Uh, and I mean, we know the consequences of prohibition. People bought it illegally. People started to try and creatively make it at home, which mm. I certainly don't suggest that you do unless you're professionally trained in doing that. People got sick. Some people actually, unfortunately, passed away because they drank tainted products. Um, and so it was a absolute nightmare. Um, people had raided uh, liquor outlets. Um, there was looting in response to mm-hmm. the ban. Um, so luckily, none of the uh, people on the other side of the aisle here have ever suggested to recreate prohibition. Um, but yes, they did do that in South Africa, and it was an incredible disaster. No kidding. I mean, we're going to do a post-mortem on this because sooner or later this is going to be over. There will be some kind of global deep breath and then we sit down and look at what just happened and that is probably going to be on the top three list of things people did somewhere on the planet that were just flat out dumb. (laughs) Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, that's I, I think that's probably number one. I hope there's nothing as dumb as that out there. I hope not either. David Clement, thanks so much for getting up early and staying uh, with, with us for, through the news break and giving us good insights into that piece you've written in the Financial Post about uh, suggestions for reviving uh, a restaurant industry that definitely needs all the help it can get. We appreciate your time this morning very much. Great to speak to you. Thank you very much, Sterling. Appreciate it. David Clement, the North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Center in Oakville, Ontario. It's a pleasure to welcome Justin Ling back to the program. Mr. Ling is a freelance reporter uh, with Vice.com, among many other uh, outlets that he writes for. Uh, We last spoke with Mr. Ling on the We scandal and doubtless will again. But today, Justin's with us from Montreal to talk about a piece he wrote for Vice.com entitled Seven Chief Public health officers called for drug decriminalization, but Justin Trudeau isn't budging. And we'll talk about why and how with Justin Ling in Montreal. Welcome back, Justin. Good morning. 
Hey, good morning. Good to have you back with us. Uh, Mr. Trudeau I was uh, I conducted a series of virtual meetings here with uh, political leaders and the media uh, earlier last week. Uh, thanks to Verrill for her email correcting me. I said he was in town. He wasn't. He was on a Zoom uh, connection. But he did manage to do a media interview and speak with some political leaders. But, Justin, let's do a little background before we get to Mr. Trudeau's position on drug decriminalization and talk about the the question, two questions actually, that you and your colleagues at Vice.com put to uh, officials, public health officials in the country. Who did you select to contact and what kind of feedback did you get? Yeah, so I was curious to talk to the chief public health officers and the chief medical officers of every province, obviously the federal government, and the major cities in Canada. Uh, we, we've seen over the last uh, couple of years that the chief uh, public health officers of Vancouver and British Columbia have come out and endorsed drug decriminalization as a strategy to fight the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you, they've, they've said quite bluntly, in fact, the Vancouver public health officer actually recommends legalization of these substances, but both are saying we need to get away from criminal justice model. We're never going to please our way out of a pandemic. What we need is a better access to safe supply to fight what is a poisoning epidemic, you know, on the streets of Vancouver and elsewhere. Um, so I got curious, you know, how many other public health officers across the country um, are of a, of a similar mindset? Turns out that it's actually quite a number. Um, you know, I emailed and, and called up basically every province and every major city and found that Yes, on top of ben, uh, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, the chief uh, public health officers of the Yukon, uh, Toronto, Montreal, Quebec, uh, and the federal public uh, health officer, Theresa Tam, all support drug decriminalization, or at least a conversation, a serious conversation about it, uh, to some degree, you know, right now. Uh, it's actually pretty interesting, even, you know, the more conservative-minded public health officers in Alberta and Saskatchewan, um, we're not you know, not receptive to the idea. I asked them, do you support decriminalization? Even, you know, whether it's yes or no, do you support a broader access to safe supply of safer drugs for those who use? Right. And basically every province agreed with the second statement. The, the, the first one, you know, a little bit less support in the prairies for sure, but generally speaking, there is a growing consensus in this country that criminalization hasn't worked and we need to find out a better model. Um, unfortunately, the prime minister doesn't seem to agree with, you know, the growing medical and scientific consensus on that front. So the two questions were, do you support the decriminalization of illicit drugs in order to combat the opioid crisis? And irrespective of question one about decriminalization, question two is, do you support an expansion in the access to the safe supply of illicit drugs? So almost everyone responded positively to the second question, Justin, about access to safe supply, where the... The, the differences occurred was on the degree of decriminalization or not. And some are flat out no, yeah. and others are sure, let's get it done and, and move on. So there's yeah. so some disagreement on question one, but uh, I suppose you were you surprised by the unanimity of response on question two? Not entirely surprised. You know, I, I think it's one thing to say, you know, we support a, a broader access and we support um, you know, safer drugs, making it to those who use anyway. Um, but in some cases, the provinces aren't exactly, you know, listening to their public health officers, right? So um, actual access to safe supply of drugs in this country is still quite limited. Right. You're still talking about thousands of people across the country, 
even though there's tens of thousands of drug users who are at risk, uh, we are really only addressing a fraction of um, those who, you know, who need to have the safe supply so that they don't potentially face a drug poisoning from um, extremely potent fentanyl or carafentanyl in their drug supply. So, you know, this is, you know, where, you know, this is where the tension really is. You know, a lot of public health you know, experts are saying the only way you can make safe supply really work is if you have decriminalization. You know, it's trying to basically fight a battle with one hand tied behind your back as the government continues arresting and prosecuting people who are, you know, small-time dealers or small, you know, or, or personal users. Sure. Um, well, you know, you can't really get them into programs that might save their lives. And as you say, this is not something you can police your way out of. And I remember this is about 10 years ago, Justin, when the chief superintendent of Scotland Yard in England sat down before the Parliamentary Justice Committee and looked at them and said, ladies and gentlemen, the war on drugs is lost. We need to move on and do better. And that's uh, consistent with the, the, the chiefs of the Canadian Association of chiefs of police are are and they're the ones who do the busting of the small time yeah. dealers and all that. they're saying basically the same thing 10 years after scotland yard's boss did we can't police our way out of this situation let's look at alternatives yeah that's right the Canadian association of chiefs of police put out a very thoughtful report that sort of broke down all of the ways in which you know trying to use a criminal justice you know, model to get rid of addiction is just a fool's errand and how it is time, especially considering the success we've had with legalizing marijuana, it's time to look at a, another system to, um, you know, face this epidemic. We're talking about tens of thousands of, of deaths, yes. right? You know, across this country, just based, you know, unfortunately, we still have a really inadequate surveillance model in this country for overdose deaths. But just based on the data we have from British Columbia and some preliminary data from across the country, this could be our deadliest month in Canada ever for the opioid epidemic. We're already talking about 1,200 people dead that we know of mm -hmm. in the first half of the year. Um, you know, this is, this is a, an intense crisis. And, you know, what the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police are saying, what many of these public health officers are saying, what the, gov uh, the Premier of British Columbia and the Mayor of, Tr of Vancouver are all saying is, you know, we need something different now. You know, it, it's not enough to be announcing small pockets of money to be running new pilot projects in some cities here and there, which is what the government's doing. You know, this is what the government has been doing for the last five years. Small announcements, small programs, small pilot projects. And you know, increasingly, everyone who has skin in the game is saying, that's not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, this is just woefully inadequate for the scale of the problem. And really, you know, you're, you're, you're swinging against the tide by doing this when we're still using uh, a criminal model to try and govern the system. You know, we're, we're still arresting and prosecuting more than 1,000 people a year and, and, and jailing hundreds uh, for simple drug possession. And you know, fundamentally, that is just not a way in which you're going to address this problem from the ground up. Justin Ling is a freelance reporter who has guested on this program before. He is back with us today talking about an article he wrote recently for Vice.com. Seven chief political public health officers call for drug decriminalization, but Justin Trudeau isn't budging. And he goes on to say, with pressure mounting, the prime minister has continued to resist expert calls to decriminalize drug possession, even as he insists he's following the science on this matter. 
matter. And Justin, you go on to point out that two of the scientists he's uh, allegedly following, including our chief public health officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, uh, does go on because you asked her about this too. And she say she she pointed out that the government has consistently resisted a conversation about decriminalization and adding it needs debate and discussion. And another scientist the Trudeau government purports to follow, Bonnie Henry, chief public health officer here in BC, published a report last year that carried a recommendation for decriminalization of people who use drugs in BC. Two of the country's top scientists the Trudeau says he's following, and yet he's not budging on this. What's the deal, Justin? Well, I can tell you pretty bluntly that I've spoken to Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould, you know, our former Attorney General and our former uh, Health Minister, um, who, of course, left Cabinet in a rather uh, unpleasant circumstance a couple of years ago. Um, Both of them told me that they actually, you know, while still in Cabinet, traveled to Portugal um, and, and while in Lisbon, noted that the country had decriminalized drugs two decades prior, and by all accounts, it had worked really, really well. Everyone they spoke to in, in, in Portugal, they told me, had basically said, you know, decriminalization has been, you know, not perfect. Not everything is wonderful now, but sure. by and large has made things better in terms of drug use, in terms of overdoses, in terms of a whole bunch of other metrics. And the, and, 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 and the Portuguese society hasn't corroded from the inside <laughs> out as a result of this move, which was, of course, anticipated when it was made a decade or two ago. Exactly. And so they came back to Ottawa and, you know, sat in cabinet and said to the prime minister, I think we should consider this model. You know, we're still seeing thousands and thousands and thousands of people die. It's time we start looking at decriminalization as a, as a part of a solution. Right. What the prime minister told them pretty bluntly was, I'm not doing it. The polling just doesn't support it. You know, I, I think I'm going to lose votes if I do this. Uh, the conservatives are going to paint us as soft on crime. Therefore, I don't care if it's going to work. We're not doing it. Since then, whenever he's been asked about it, um, the prime minister has done a a rather tricky thing in saying, you know, uh, decriminalization is not a silver bullet, and therefore we're going to go with other strategies. Right. Um, But of course, as everyone, everyone I've spoken to will say, no one's claiming it's a panacea. Nobody's claiming it is a silver bullet. They're saying it's a necessary step to get your other strategies to work properly. But the prime minister just absolutely refuses to engage with it. We, you know, I've asked him myself many times over the years, um, and he has consistently said, you know, it's not going to happen. When he was confronted about this by a frontline uh, harm reduction worker, you know, who has seen many of many people die, many of her friends die from opioid poisoning, um, you know, she implored the prime minister to look at decriminalization, and he looked at her and said, "Listen, I'm not there yet." So, you know, that has been basically his stance is that I personally, you know, don't, you know, don't believe in it or don't think the polling is there for it. Therefore, it's not happening. So he, you know, even as he insists that he's listening to the medical science, you know, he is actively ignoring it. Uh, because his personal convictions tell him no. Well, it's all about re-election, and, uh, you know, there's certainly that big dance going on right now, Justin. How do we finesse or how do we embarrass the opposition into giving us what we want, which is a chance at the polls? We've killed the committees on we. They're not going to peel back that onion any further. We're going to spend at least another $100 billion on basically buying the NDP platform uh, and implementing it. So a, a lot of of electioneering going on in the minds of uh, the PMO 
certainly. So uh, being that poll conscious, as clearly Justin Trudeau is, is, uh, it, is your uh, awareness of Canadian sentiment on this equal to his? In other words, do you think he's got polls right? Would the majority of Canadians uh, disapprove of decriminalization? Maybe. Truthfully, maybe. You know, the polls do tend to suggest that the country is split down the middle on this, that slightly more people are opposed to decriminalization and tend to feel more passionately about it mm-hmm. than those who support it. But let, let's put a huge caveat on it. I think most people are not going to go to the polls or not go to the polls or vote for one party over another because of this one strategy, which, by the way, is being done to combat deaths, yes. mass deaths in our cities and in a lot of rural communities and a lot of indigenous communities. You know, I think people will understand the rationale for it. I think if the prime minister makes the case, I think he can convince a lot of people. You know, there was not a widespread support for marijuana legalization before the prime minister started campaigning on it. The, the numbers moved significantly in favor as the government made a very compelling case that there is a very good reason for doing this. Good point. I think we could see the same thing when it comes to drug decriminalization. Um, you know, on top of that, you know, the prime minister keeps saying that you know, this is the year where we need to remake Canada better. You know, we have an opportunity to do some bold, innovative strategies. Build back better. You know, yeah. Exactly. I think, you know, not having people dying in our streets should definitely be incorporated in that strategy. And, you know, fi- and I think he would get the opposition, you know, the, the Green and NDP support anyway. But, you know, fundamentally, it's hard to argue that you shouldn't do something for political reasons when this many people are dying, mm-hmm. 4,000 people a year are dying, at least, of drug poisoning or drug overdoses. This strategy could mean that number goes down precipitously. You know, it doesn't really matter if you're jeopardizing your reelection bid. If you're saving literally thousands of lives, I would argue it's worth it. And we'll, and we'll leave it there, too, Justin. A very well-presented case this morning, my friend. Good to have you back on the program. I can't wait until we have another opportunity to talk about we, because I like the way you're peeling back the onion, and it definitely needs a lot more work. Thanks for this this morning. We'll talk again. Thanks. Freelance reporter Justin Ling joining us from Montreal. Our next guest joins us from Toronto, where he is a professor of psychology at York University. And he, along with some teammates, have just done a new study in which uh, the findings include uh, parents with young kids are more likely to turn to alcohol to cope with pandemic stress. Our guest is Professor Jeffrey Wardell from the Department of Psychology at York University in Toronto. Professor Wardell, Jeffrey, good morning, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. May I call you Jeff? Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, You and a a group of uh, colleagues from the psych department at York uh, decided to do this survey on stress and coping conditions with alcohol in Toronto. What was the motivator, Jeff, Uh, aside from obviously just uh, doing uh, a reality check on human coping with global pandemics? Yeah, I think, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Sterling, Um, the, you know, the pandemic was really stressful for everyone. Um, and, you know, I, I, as a psychologist and somebody whose uh, research uh, focuses primarily on alcohol, my colleagues and I know that 
the use of alcohol to cope is something that many people engage in. And we also know from prior research that people who turn to alcohol as a coping mechanism uh, tend to be at greater risk for alcohol-related problems and heavy drinking relative to people who use alcohol more uh, in like social contexts. So when the pandemic first hit and everyone was uh, you know, everyone's lives were turned upside down and yeah. it was very stressful. We really wanted to know, are there going to be some people who might be using alcohol more heavily as a coping mechanism? And if so, who are those people? So that was the motivator for the study. Okay, now here's the formal uh, title of the study, friends. Drinking to cope during COVID-19 pandemic. The role of external and internal factors in coping motive path ways to alcohol use, solitary drinking, and alcohol problems. So that's a, that's that's it sounds more challenging when you put it in into the formal context that you you but that was the, the the headline too. So give us the methodology here, Jeff. How how many how many subjects did you study and and how many kids did they have and how did you go about finding these people? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the, the title is kind of a mouthful because we were really interested in several factors. Um, and so the, the methodology was an online survey. Um, and, you know, of course, because of all of the public health measures in place during the initial stages of the pandemic, we couldn't do face-to-face interviews with people. So we put a, a survey out online and we actually used a crowdsourcing platform, which is commonly used in research studies to try to recruit samples of people who are interested in doing surveys. Sure. So we actually put this out across Canada and we, we were able to identify uh, just over 300. There's actually 320 adults across Canada who completed the survey and identified themselves as a drinker, said that they use alcohol. So that was a sample that we focused on. And uh, what we ended up with in our sample was uh, about half of the, the sample were men, uh, reported that they were men. And the mean, the average age was about 32. So it was a, a relatively younger sample. Okay, sure. Um, and uh, many of these participants, and I, I don't have the number right off the top of my head, but uh, there were there were many of them who had children. Actually, I do have the number. There was uh, uh, ninety of the participants had children. Okay. And among those participants, uh, the average age of their children was about six years old. Mm-hmm. So they have young children at home, school age children. And in the study, we actually were interested in looking at whether having children living at home was associated with increased likelihood of drinking to cope because we know we knew just based on things that were already in the media just how much stress parents were under yes how much they had to deal with having their children at home having to help their children uh, navigate their schooling uh having to help their children navigate their own distress about the uh pandemic and then also even just being concerned for uh, for their children's welfare and health, uh, especially early in the pandemic when the survey was done. I should mention that this survey was sent out at the very beginning of May, and we asked people about the 30 days prior. So we're really asking people about their behavior and 
about these factors in April, which was like right when the pandemic first hit. And it's also really... I'm sorry, Jeff. It was was at a time in April when we were pretty much locked down. So uh, I'm not surprised that you received the enthusiastic response that you did, because in those days in April, there was precious little else to do. We couldn't go home and stay home was the directive. And most of us did. And and everyone who had children were were trapped at home with their their kids and trying to figure out what to do. And uh so I think that this was a really stressful time. And at that time, we also, you know, stress was high because we, we really still didn't know a lot of things. There was still a lot of unknowns about, about how long this is going to last, right. how bad is it going to be. So I think that, you know, this was really a time that we were interested in getting this survey out and finding out, is alcohol something people are turning to to cope? And if so, uh, who are these people? And, and uh, you know, uh, what is that associated with? And, you know, the the... Uh, the spoiler here is that parents were one of the groups that we identified that were at, at higher risk of reporting that they were using alcohol to cope and that this was actually associated with reporting increased alcohol use in April compared to the amount that they drank prior to the pandemic. And were you able to um, to, to monitor that metric from something as simple as uh, increased volume of alcohol sales by province, which is very uh, measurable and probably fairly immediate in terms of confirming your suspicions? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. You know, this study was focused on on self-report surveys, and so we didn't link it with any data like that. However, you're correct that that is something that's really uh, useful data to look at. And actually, in the news around the time in Ontario, there there were news reports that the LCBO, which is the, the Liquor Control Board in Ontario, yep. was reporting increased sales. Mm-hmm. Um, the the issue with uh, drawing strong conclusions about that in terms of, of being able to conclude that this means people are drinking more is also that, you know, the LCBO was selling more alcohol, but bars and restaurants weren't selling any sure. uh, or selling much less. So, so it's hard to know whether it really means at a population level that alcohol use increased or whether people had just shifted their alcohol use to the home. And therefore, they were buying more alcohol at the the LCBO. Or maybe they were stockpiling alcohols and, you know, they were buying a lot more, but not necessarily drinking it all at once. So, so, you know, there's limitations to some of these methodologies. But at least in the survey that we did, we asked people, you know, in the past month, how much did you drink? And we, you know, we used validated measures to assess drinking uh, over that time period. And we asked them, you know, before the pandemic hit, how much were you drinking? And among people who said they were using alcohol to cope, which was parents, people who reported greater levels of depression, and also people who were more socially disconnected, they were saying, yes, I'm using alcohol as a coping strategy. And it was that uh, the, that use of alcohol as a coping strategy was associated with increased alcohol use during that time period. Interesting stuff. Now, Jeff, I need to take a break, but just before we do, um, it did. Uh, we happened, I just by doing a little homework and preparing for this conversation this morning, yesterday, I came across a number, I mean, just speaking of measurable metrics, that suggests uh, of the 10 provinces, British Columbia was the leader in cannabis sales and has been uh. since the beginning of the pandemic. And I I wonder, uh, uh, just a curiosity question, Professor Wardell, uh, why did you not include cannabis consumption uh, as a coping reality along with alcohol? Or was that just too broad to to, to get into? 
Yeah, I think that is a really great question. And I think one of the things in our study, so we asked people if they use cannabis and other substances. For whatever reason, you know, this wasn't this wasn't a representative survey of, of the population. So in our study, we ended up with lower numbers of people who were cannabis users, okay. and they uh, they weren't reporting that much. So we ended up focusing more primarily on alcohol use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that that is a really important question, and I do know that other research groups have done uh, studies that are more that were kind of designed to really focus on cannabis use during the pandemic. And I think that some of those findings are starting to come out um, uh, from other research groups. And, and it really, it's an important question. And, you know, some people might gravitate towards alcohol as a coping mechanism, whereas some people might gravitate towards cannabis. Um, And, and, you know, I think we need to look at, at, at all of these uh, negative uh, potentially negative coping strategy. Jeffrey Wardell is with us. He is a professor of psychology at York University and a co-author of a study about drinking to cope during COVID-19. And Jeff, you know, just before uh, we went to break, you, you talked about uh, uh, the, the, the methodology and the number of individuals across Canada, the average age of, of the people involved, the average age of their children and so on. Uh, so let's talk about the findings. Let's talk about connecting all all of these dots that uh, that and and what you've determined or been able to conclude it, uh, based on the voluntary uh, submissions from all of these young people across Canada, uh, alcohol, uh, and, you know, we make jokes about the quarantini and mom's mm-hmm. glass of wine at the end of the day. And I mean, that's it's cute. Uh, but, you know, it's not always cute. And it, it does alcohol, as we all know, uh, can pose addictive issues. So what are you what are you finding as a result of this pandemic binge some of us are on? Yeah, that's it's a great question. And, and, you know, I think that the findings really, in a nutshell, tell us that there are certain individuals who were more likely to turn to alcohol to cope. And those individuals were reporting increased alcohol use early in the pandemic. It was also associated with higher levels of alcohol-related problems that were reported. Uh, Now, this isn't necessarily full-blown alcohol use disorder, Mm -hmm. but it's hinting at that alcohol use might be, uh, you know, leading to certain harms or uh, issues, maybe interpersonal or occupational, uh, that we might be concerned about. And so, I think that really the findings are telling us that we need to continue to monitor this situation as as the pandemic is ongoing and uh, see if this uh, increase in alcohol use that we see among certain individuals, whether that becomes more of a habit that's long term. And if so, then uh, I think that that would be something that we really need to uh, we, we need to provide support to those individuals, help them find more healthy ways of coping with the stress that, that they're experiencing during this time. I suppose the stress is, and as a psychologist, you would take some time to analyze and break down the stressors involved. Uh, Uncertainty, I suppose, being the root of it all, Jeff, because we don't know. None of us knows how this thing's going to play out. None of us knows if there's going to be some kind of vaccine by Christmas or even next Christmas. So uncertainty still prevails. What are the other major stressors? Obviously, being a teacher to a six-year-old, 
world was never anything you had planned on doing. And suddenly having that role thrust upon you, I get six-year-old math is doable. 16-year-old math, uh-oh, other ball game altogether. Yeah. But you know what I mean, just the unexpected. So un- uncertainty and the unexpected. Are those the two major ones, Jeff? I, I definitely think so. And we, you know, we didn't ask them about uncertainty per se, but we definitely know that everyone was living with uncertainty and that parents particularly had uncertainty about their own, you know, their own work and their own uh, livelihood, but also about their child's well-being. So I think that that, that added uh, uncertainty uh, about children really, I think, is, is the tipping point here that could add additional stress for parents. Sure. We did also look at uh, one factor, uh, stress-related factor, health anxiety. So we asked people if they were concerned about their health mm-hmm. um, early in the pandemic. And actually, we didn't find that that was a factor that was associated with drinking to cope. So it, it didn't seem like it was so much that people were worried about their health, but these other external stress-related factors uh, were like uh, being a parent uh, and, um, you know, having income loss was another thing well, that we I, found. I was just going to say, Jeff, I mean, in some cases, some of the people were, were dealing with not only the stress of the pandemic and all that, but some of the people were, and as it turns out, many millions of us, especially back when you were doing the survey, were dealing with unemployment realities. Yes. So, yeah, and that was another factor that emerged as significant in our findings uh, was that individuals who reported that they had lost some percentage of their income uh, relative to people who said that their income hadn't changed, uh, that they were reporting increased alcohol use during the the pandemic as well. The other thing that we found, uh, which was really important, was uh, we had a measure in the study of social connectedness. So, you know, everybody was socially distancing early on and weren't being able to see their loved ones. Now, some people might have still felt socially connected because maybe they live with people that they're connected to or they were still able to connect with them virtually. But I think other people, there were certain people who really felt isolated during this time. And that isolation was uh, an independent factor as well as depression. Those two things were independently associated with uh, drinking to cope as well. So these, I think, are some of the the uh, the emotional factors and and, and sort of uh, uh, stress related factors that we really did see a, a stronger relationship for. Well, it's interesting because in in our next hour we're going to be speaking with a health reporter from the Globe and Mail who's been doing a lot of homework in Ontario as well, and her her point is is and you're you're talking about basically mental health issues here, Jeff that mm-hmm. that that complicate people's lives to the point where they turn for coping mechanisms just almost almost involuntarily, uh, and and uh, we talked about unemployment and other realities. Well, uh, the reporter that we're going to talk to later uh, is suggesting that these mental health issues also apply to our children. Yes, we're going through stressful situations ourselves, but perhaps a little more attention to the mental health as well as physical health of the small people in Canada uh, would warrant uh, a little more uh, public recognition too. I think that's really important. And, you know, in this particular study, we we focused on adults. Sure. But I, you know, just knowing what I know as a psychologist, uh, uh, the way that, that adults handle stress and cope with stress is something that children pick up on. 
So I think that it really is important for us to recognize that the stress that we're all experiencing as adults, you know, our children aren't immune to that. And that, uh, you know, if we're turning to alcohol as a coping mechanism, that that might be something that we that that we want to be sure that our children aren't uh, learning that behavior. Exactly. Uh, Because when children grow up, then they you know, they have to learn how to cope with their stress as well. So so I do think that that is a risk and something that as an alcohol researcher, we know that uh, that, that can be, uh, it, it can run in families, right? So that could be something that we really want to be concerned about with parents, with children at home, if they're turning to alcohol to cope. Uh, one of the the potential consequences of that is that it could affect children negatively. Absolutely. And uh, we appreciate your time this morning, Jeff Wardell. It's great to speak to you and uh, to our listeners. Uh, the full uh, of survey and all the methodology involved, drinking to cope during COVID-19 pandemic, just Google online library uh, and it'll fall into place pretty quickly. It's it's a little clinical looking, but it's fascinating stuff. And uh, congratulations to you and your team, Jeff, for, for doing the work that you're doing. Keep it up. And I hope to have an opportunity to speak to you about more of your work down the road. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure and have a great day. Thanks, Jeff. I'm intrigued by this next guest. He is the CEO of Alpine Building Maintenance, and I'm looking at the website, alpineservices.ca. Alpine is a national facility cleaning and maintenance service provider focused on serving customers with premium cleaning solutions empowering them to focus on key business activities and look their best to their customers. A pleasure to welcome Harj Johal, the CEO of Alpine, to the morning show. Harj, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And I am I'm really pleased uh, about this story because when I saw it, when it first came to our attention, I saw building maintenance and I thought, oh, brother, here's a here's going to this going to be a sob story about a company that's getting clobbered because they maintain buildings and there's nobody going downtown to buildings. So they're out of work. And it, it's just exactly the opposite. You've never been busier. So square that circle for us, Arts. How's that happening? Yeah, no problem. So uh, naturally, with a pandemic, um, anything to do with cleaning products or cleaning services, which is our core business, is uh, really just on fire right now. So, um, you know, naturally, we have a lot of calls, a lot of workload in respect to deep cleaning, disinfecting, cleaning products, hand sanitization, Mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. So our, our business is really busy keeping up with the demand. So even though there may not be as many square feet as there once were to maintain, the maintenance on the existing contracted square feet is just that much more intense, correct? Yeah, because what you've seen is a lot of the non-essential facilities, if you look at office towers and maybe shopping centers where there's sort of less uh, population, where there's essential services like financial institutions, grocery stores, or healthcare, there's just such a big workload uh, to keep up with uh, sanitization and disinfection. So it kind of netted out. Yeah, exactly. Now I'm looking at the website again, and you've got to you break it down into retail. Was and and you just suggest right on the website increase shopper confidence, happiness, and loyalty. And all it takes is just a little bit of shine to your retail outlet. How many retailers, Harge, have the resources, the depth to be able to recognize the need to look just squeaky clean, and are putting out the extra dota to maintain that look? 
Well, nearly everybody is. Um, everybody right now is is really wanting to reassure their customers, shoppers, tenants uh, that look, we have this under control, and so they look to us to make sure that we have the right uh, chemicals, the right equipment, and we could just make their facilities shine today and. And actually, even a step further is what we've done is we've have specialized cleaners and special uh, sort of uniforms that say disinfecting in progress. So uh-huh. when a shopper goes into a mall or or, a, or an office, uh, you know, tenant goes into their office environment, we've got specific cleaners with special uniforms saying disinfecting in, in progress, so they make them just feel that much more comfortable. Indeed, and psychologically, it's huge, too. Again, more from the website. Outstanding reputation, 37 years in the business, managing 100 million square feet of commercial space. The team is made up of over 2,000 skilled employees, and I hasten to add, Vancouver's head office, that's where you are and where you live, but this is a national company. Where else do you have operations? Harge. Oh, so we're in Alberta, Edmonton, Calgary, the central provinces, Winnipeg. Uh, we're in Toronto, and uh, recently we just acquired a business in Ottawa. So we're we're making our way east, and uh, hopefully one day we'll be uh, coast to coast. And there's a couple of areas that we're not in, but uh, we consider ourselves a, a national company. As you expand out of British Columbia into other jurisdictions, what do we do differently here regulation-wise that's tougher to accomplish in other provinces? Or is the shoe other on the other foot and BC is more difficult than other places? Actually, BC is a little bit easier, to be honest with you. Um, you know, we find it when you go a little bit east, you know, you find some difficulties with labor and uh, some unionized environments. But uh, we, we actually think the West, uh, specifically BC, is, is a great place to be. We've, we've, it's been our home for 40 years and, and we've done quite well. So now, again, back to the pandemic and how this crisis, this completely unexpected crisis, you were wise enough and again, you were able to pivot. There's that big buzzword, Harge. You were able to pivot your operations to accommodate the new demands. How fast did that happen for you? All really quick. Um, we right off the bat when this when we saw this thing coming, um, we had to really change our uh, cleaning chemicals. We had to get to health healthcare standard cleanings. Um, we had to make sure we had specialized equipment like foggers, electrostatic sprayers, enough of them, which we did right off the hopper. And so we are one of the first companies here in, in BC that uh, had all of that stuff. And uh, again, just got a lot of phone calls from our customers uh, asking them to help them out and uh, and which we did. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you watch your customers modify their workplaces, they're bringing in plexiglass by the truckload and and, and moving desks and and creating more distance between workers and all of that sort of thing. And as as you watch all of these modifications take place and obviously have to work around them all, do you occasionally get the, the office managers or people coming to you going, so what would you do? How would you make this more safe for my workers from a cleaning perspective yes not from a not from a physical um sort of office structure component but just from going in and assessing what they could do from a cleaning perspective that's what I'm i meant yeah trying to yeah from a cleaning perspective yes we go in and make sure that we could say look you've got uh, people at night you've got people during the daytime let's let's add some day staff day cleaning uh, staff here or maybe we could do some additional touch point cleaning which is going around and 
ensuring that the door handles and elevator buttons are, are clean regularly. Sure. Or maybe even it's just uh, changing their sort of cleaning chemicals where they uh, sort of have general purpose cleaners. And now we need to move it to a more of an aggressive uh, type of uh, uh, cleaning chemical. So all that stuff, we've gone in and helped uh, all of our customers to try to make sure we combat this uh, uh, in a uniform uh, manner. Harch, do you have any new customers, unexpected new business that, again, as a result of the pandemic, you find yourself, again, adjusting to, oh, sure, we can do that, too? You know, not really, because I think in this environment, uh, customers really don't want to change your cleaning providers because they've really gotten them down to a science as far as a routine in their buildings. And so changing a cleaning contractor at this point uh, in trying to, you know, it might disrupt what they've already have. So it's, it's not been uh, more uh, new customers. It's just uh, more uh, growth with our existing customers. Absolutely. And I suppose a lot of that has to do with uh, having access to timely and early released work safe guidelines for all sorts of different environments, because you have to follow all of those guidelines as you clean them out, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the guidelines are there. We've got to make sure that um, the Health Canada guidelines we're following. In fact, they come in uh, from time to time in our in our shopping centers and healthcare. So just to make sure that we're actually doing what we're saying we're doing. Mm-hmm, sure. um, and uh, and so yeah, it's very rigorous out there. The 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 um, regulators are coming into facilities. We've seen that before. So you've got to have your ducks in a row. Any trouble finding workers? Um, we're so far okay. Um, the majority of our cleaning staff work at night when, uh, you know, customers or tenants or uh, office personnel are leave. Right. So they're kind of not around a lot of other people. So in that sense, they kind of feel safe. But again, we, we tell our, our, our employees that uh, if you don't feel safe at any time, you let us know and we'll, we'll make sure we figure it out. And, and we have an abundance of PPE, gloves, masks, uh, et cetera. So um, no, not, not, not yet. Good to hear. Well, congratulations. Keep up the good work, Harge. It's it's a great story, a wonderful Vancouver entrepreneurial success story, and uh, we wish you considerably more success. Thanks, Sterling. Appreciate Harge, it. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Harge Johal is the CEO of Alpine Building Maintenance. You can find him online at alpineservices.ca. Joining us from Toronto is a freelance writer who uh, reports uh, frequently for the Globe and Mail. Uh, she's got a new article out on, on a new report on children's health. A pleasure to welcome Anna Sherritt to the program. Anna, good morning. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Good morning, Sterling. Well, it's great to have you with us. And this is a new report from a a group called, uh, wait a second, Children First Canada. And the report is Raising Canada 2020, Ringing the Alarm for Canada's Children. It's early on a Sunday morning here on the West Coast. This is not welcome news or warm and fuzzy statistics, Anna, that you're going to share with us this morning. So let's cut to the chase and get right down to it. You say the essence of your report is we are not paying enough attention to the mental health of Canadian children. That's correct. Yeah, the report finds that uh, Canada is actually doing very poorly in how it's uh, treating its kids. Um, Basically, in the last 14 years, it's dropped to 25th place out of 41 um, affluent nations, and we used to be 12th back in 2007. So things are not going very well. And unfortunately, COVID-19, which is a sort of a big factor that's documented in this report, has, of course, made everything worse. 
uh, Anna, what are the other metrics? Or what are the measuring sticks by which we have dropped in the esteem of these uh, report researchers? Where did we fail or, or what are the areas in which we find uh, they find us lacking? Well, they find us lacking in, in many areas. Um, as you mentioned, mental health was sort of a focal point in the piece. Yeah. Um, and also, we're, we're feeling on child abuse front, um, preventable injuries, infant mortality, which is a bit shocking given it's Canada. No kidding. Um, and physical inactivity as well, which, of course, COVID has compounded. Um, and also uh, vaccines. Vaccines were identified. So 20% of kids now are not vaccinated because, of course, the scheduled vaccines they were uh, due to receive this year were postponed. Oh, that's right, of course. And that, uh, that, that there's uh, as if we need more ratcheting up of the anxiety factor on this weekend before Labor Day or this Labor Day weekend, the one in which uh, pre- the one preceding the return to school. Now, you're in Ontario and it's a little yes. different than in BC, but I'll bet you the anxiety level is 100% identical. Uh, this isn't helping in that regard at all, is it? No, it's not. Um, I think a lot of parents like myself, I have two kids, uh, 11, or 12 and 10, um, are wrestling with that decision because, of course, um, now there's the concern over whether to work uh, full time, whether to send your kids back. Right. There's the health concerns around being in the classroom. And uh, every province is, of course, wrestling with its own issues uh, regarding spacing, social distancing, mm-hmm. um, how that's going to be financed. So it's it's a big concern for parents, definitely. Uh, and and one of the issues that was outlined in the report was, of course, the, the financial insecurities that have been brought on by the pandemic, yes. which are intensifying poverty issues, which were present um, back in 2019 prior to this report being released. So that's just intensifying it. Uh, essentially, 29% of Canadians said that they're having a, a mo- that the pandemic is having a moderate or major impact on their ability to uh, finance their lifestyle. Oh, there's no question. Uh, as, even if, you know, you have both parents working and one isn't suddenly, of course, then their, their ability to cope is cut in half. And uh, hopefully it's not the, the high wage earner half either, because it's never just 50-50 on that uh, uh, scale either. May I ask, on a yeah. personal level, what decision have you made? I'm assuming both your children are in elementary school. Uh, what What's going to happen this week? They're going to go back, Anna, or are you going to keep them home? So in Ontario, um, I'm in Toronto, yeah. which has pushed the date back a week. Um, so it's bought itself some time. Um, our numbers have gone up uh, significantly in the last couple of weeks, caseloads around COVID-19. And I'm, I'm a bit concerned. I have indicated that, yes, I will send my children back. But I am reserving the right to change that decision sure. um, should, should the circumstances change. I'm not convinced class sizes are small enough. Um, currently, I think the, the the cohort that my son is in, the, the older cohort, will be around 27 to 29 children in mm-hmm. the classroom. And I think, oh. given what we know about, you know, spread and, and the need for a, a lot of social distancing in the classroom. Ah, okay. Now, what are your children, again, and I'm, I'm, I'm reaching into your personal life here in front of a lot of witnesses, but um, you, you have elementary school age children, uh, and obviously you're having a considerable amount of discussion on this matter. They, being the ones going or not, will probably be heavily involved in those discussions. What are they telling you? 
Well, they're showing anxiety, um, as I think a lot of kids are. And that was also something identified in the report. A lot of kids are worried. They see their parents worrying. They're, they see their parents very unclear on what to do. Right. I, I would say that probably defines our family. I mean, being a health reporter for the past 20 years, I've, I've read a lot about uh, the different outbreaks globally, how school rollouts have gone. Um, <clears throat> I've shared a bit of that information with them. Um, I think there's a bit of a difference in compliance. I have a daughter who's very compliant and wears her mask and, and completely understands it. And then I have a son who's less concerned. Which, yeah. Again, most people fall into these camps. Um, so I worry a little bit about his compliance with the mask wearing and the fact that he will be removing the mask at school um, to eat. <laughs> of course. Uh, because I feel like removing the mask to eat is going to undermine any efforts to contain the spread potentially when you're you know you've been wearing the mask all day and then you suddenly remove it to to eat your lunch um compromises your efforts and yet you gotta feed them (laughs) they're not there's no way there's no way they're going to go through a full day of school without some kind of serious snack in the middle of it all no exactly it's it's not perfect it's a very imperfect approach and and i mean at some point you have to everyone has to accept that it's part of living in a pandemic. Um, Indeed. Yes. And, uh, and luckily, children are less affected, obviously, than, than adults are. Back, so that is comforting. <laughs> back to this report that you wrote, this article you wrote, uh, by the way, which we found at healthing.org. Uh, but this, this, you talk about a conversation you had with uh, Sarah Austin, the CEO at Children First Canada, and this is, after all, their report. And, and you quote her as saying, quote, we know that children's health has been on the decline for the past decade, and children's health has to be made a priority. If we know children's health has been on the decline for the past decade, why are some of us just finding about the, out about this this morning? Yeah, I don't think it's been too publicized. I think Canada has gotten a bit of a free pass in this regard. We've always been seen as a country that's on top of things. Sure. Um, and it's flown under radar for a number of years. Now, this group has been publishing this report since 2018, but that's only in the last several years. I, I think it's just, for whatever reason, we have had a false sense of security around a lot of these issues. And, and a sort of sense that this couldn't happen here, whereas in fact it has been. I mean, the fact that 20% of Canadian kids are living in poverty is, is a very concerning stat, for example. Mm-hmm. And that has not been really highlighted. Well, you know, the uh, I'm curious as to, uh, because obviously all of this is to come to the attention of policymakers, and it seems uh, there's nothing etched in stone here, but you're in the media racket. You know the election dance when you see one, and it looks like uh, we could be seeing some kind of election something or other this fall. Is it possible that this important item be included uh, as an election platform plank, given the fact that Trudeau and company appear ready to drop another pff, easily $100 billion uh, to buy votes, do you expect uh, child uh, health issues to become politicized in the weeks ahead? Well, I certainly think that the the authors of this report feel that it should be, and I feel it should be as well. I mean, um, 
one thing that they were calling on in the report was to appoint a federal commissioner for children and youth, okay. uh, which a lot of other countries have, which mm-hmm. could champion the rights of Canadian kids, and to come up with a national strategy to identify the threats to these kids. Um, they also called for an infusion of $250 million to mitigate the impact of COVID-19 on kids. So these are some measures that I think could definitely become part of the political dialogue in the next couple of months and, and should become part of it. Um, and, and in light of, of what we're hearing and reading about in this report. According to a new report, there are 8 million children in Canada and one third of them do not enjoy a safe and healthy childhood. Or put another way, Canada is not taking care of its kids. Report shows that the health of our children is not our top priority. Uh, The reporter who wrote that story, Anna Sherritt, uh, joins us from Toronto. And we're talking uh, about this new uh, report from uh, the the group is uh, Canada, I'm sorry, Children first Canada. This is their third report, and they identify, and you've already gone through the list. Let me quickly go through it again, Anna. The top 10 threats in 2020 to Canadian kids in order, as in from 1 to 10, unintentional and preventable injuries, poor mental health, child abuse, poverty, infant mortality, physical inactivity, food insecurity, systemic racism and discrimination, vaccine-preventable illnesses, and number 10 on that list is bullying. And then they go on to a call to action. So once they identify these top threats to Canadian kids, they go into a a call-to-action mode. So, Anna, what's that all about? Well, they're essentially uh, seeking um, some basically an infusion of money to make these uh, issues a priority. And they're asking for $250 million to mitigate the impact of COVID-19. Now, that's, a, I guess, a, a tall order in a time when we're seeing the federal government pay out so much money to, to different, um, you know, causes and, and initiatives at this point. Mm-hmm. But that's something they're asking for to uh, to make this a priority and to ensure that, um, that kids are kept safe. Well, I'm sure the feds now, of course, just authorized another billion dollars, uh, to $2 billion actually, to the provinces, uh, last minute sort of extra slush money uh, for the back to school uh, process. Uh, and of course, it'll be dealt out proportionately uh, based on population and such. They could easily claim that, well, that's what that money is for. You don't need any more money from us. We just gave you an, a $2 billion, so figure it out. Right. Yes. Well, there is a chance of that. Um, it's unclear exactly as to how that money will be spent at this point. Um, I know in Ontario, there's been a lot of talk about how that will be, you know, basically distributed mm-hmm. or spent. And uh, we're, we're still not clear on those details. So at this point, uh, not sure on on how that will fit into potentially this agenda. Right. So uh, one of the things that we know, and, and again, this report highlights, is that, and, and as you stated right at the beginning of our conversation, after identifying all of these threats as they're seen by uh, Children First Canada, uh, uh, you said basically um, COVID-19 has just made everything worse. It's exacerbated a lot of the existing threats. And, you know, one of the things that we're hearing about, uh, and not only as it affects children, but also uh, women, uh, and that's uh, domestic violence during COVID-19, uh, quite a serious uptick. And that's right across the board, Anna. 
Yes, that's right. The report did find that a lot of uh, violence against children, um, it, it occurred in, in 20, sorry, the previous reports in 2017 and 2018 identified that it increased 7%. And we don't have a lot of data at the moment because a lot of kids are home and a lot of child abuse cases are not being reported. Um, I know Children's Aid in Toronto found that reports of abuse dropped 40%, but that does not mean that that abuse is not happening. Right. It's, it's believed that it's happening much more now that everyone's home and, and tensions are running high. Um, the RCMP's National Child Exploitation um, Group also reported that uh, online sexual exploitation of kids is on the rise. Yes. And that they've had many reports of that as well. Uh, well, you know, we had a psychologist on from uh, York University in our last hour, and we sort of uh, told him about the conversation we were going to have with you. He was on about uh, alcohol as a coping mechanism by parents during all of this because they've had a lot thrust upon them, unexpectedly, to say the very least. And uh, a lot of them are, well, having a quarantini or two to, to try and deal with it. And, of course, unfortunately, in some cases, it's it's more than a couple. Uh, but the, the, his point was... Uh, in terms of the mental health of children, that's where I went with him in our conversation ever so briefly towards the end. He was just talking about the need to socialize and how the isolation of pandemic lockdowns and uh, school lockdowns and, you know, no, uh, no, no hockey, no baseball, no dance class, no nothing. Uh, all of that isolation also is a factor in uh, our children's mental well-being. And that uh, poses an even further conundrum for you, the mom, doesn't it, Anna? Because you know, I'm sure more than once your kids have said, gosh, I miss my friends. Yes. No, it's been a really tough go here. Um, I, I, we fall into the camp of overscheduled kids, heavily, uh, very athletic kids. And we had a number of programs that were going all the time, soccer, hockey, mm-hmm. you name it. And, you know, that all ended very abruptly in March. And, and as a result, thousands of Canadian kids like mine are, are home and they're upset. And they see, you know, they'll see kids biking by, but uh, that depends again on your comfort level. Um, with COVID-19, mm-hmm. whether you're, you're going to let your kids go out and socialize in a group or not. And we've been a bit conservative on that front. So it's been it's been a tough go. Um, a lot of isolation and trying to keep them happy. And it's a strain as a reporter also working in the midst of this, um, trying to keep everyone happy while while meeting deadlines. So it's it's been a very challenging uh period for everyone. Have you had a personal experience, because you are a well-known media person, particularly in, in southern Ontario and Toronto, have you uh, had, it, had it happened to you since this thing began, where you're on some kind of Zoom thing doing an official media bit, and you, you receive an interruption, an unexpected interruption from a small family member? Well, to be honest, my kids are now at the age where they've learned that, that mom will get rather irate <laughs> should that happen. Um, however, I think what's actually come out of this pandemic, which has been positive, is that so many people are working from home now that mm-hmm. it's become accepted. Your dog is barking, your child is crying, and and in a way, it's it's a bit refreshing to see that. It's humanized everyone and changed the workforce a little. So I'm less concerned about it, and I think a lot of people are now. So that has actually been a positive. 
Yeah. Now, this back to this report, and you can find the report at ChildrenFirstCanada.org, friends, and it's called Raising Canada 2020, Ringing the Alarm for Canada's Children. And I suppose the most uh, uh, jaw-dropping aspect to this report this morning is our loss of standing. And, and take us through that. We only have a couple of seconds here, Andrew. We were 12th once upon a time ago, and we're now, what, 47th now? Well, we are 25th out 25th. of 41. Okay. All right. Yes, according, Not as according bad to as UNICEF. And that is a very significant drop. We have a lot of work to do on this front. Um, as, as Sarah Austin, the CEO of Children First Canada, said, you know, we, we have a lot of, uh, you know, energy that we need to put back into this. We need to prioritize this because, as she said, every single day matters in the life of a child. So, they need to be put first, even though we have all sorts of other priorities at the moment. Well, again, and, and that's, uh, that's probably the message we want to leave our listeners with this morning. You, you put it the headline, and you don't write the headlines. You wrote the story, but the headline kind of summarized it nicely. Canada is not taking care of its kids. Report shows that health of our children is not a top priority. It'd be hard-pressed to believe that this weekend with all the anxiety about back to school and all those kids. But, uh, Anna, we take your point, and we thank you for your time this morning in making it with us. It's great to have you on the show. We wish you considerable good luck in <laughs> sorting out the, the return to school of the two people in your life. Thanks again thank for this. Thank you so much. I'm going to need it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it. All the best to you. Thank you. There's Anna Sherritt, Globe and Mail reporter for Health and Business for a long time, joining us this morning on the new report on children's health. And you can find that again at childrenfirstcanada.org. According to a report written by British Columbia's Privacy Commissioner Michael McAvoy and released just a couple of days ago, the B.C. government is breaking the law by extending information request times. They simply ignore the rules. It's a culture thing that needs to be changed. Changed. We need to talk about government secrecy versus our right to know. And uh, we're talking to a fellow this morning who has filed more than his own share of freedom of information privacy uh, requests of the B.C. government. He was a former reporter here in British Columbia for a number of years. He and I have talked on the radio many times before. He uh, actually saw the light a few years ago and decided to get leave broadcasting and get a real job. He's a professor of journalism and broadcasting at Mount Royal College uh, in Calgary. Sean Holman joins us from Calgary this morning. Sean, it's been a while. Good morning. It has indeed. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for raising this really important issue. I think a lot of people think sometimes that this is inside the beltway stuff, that no one really cares about it. But this issue really strikes fundamentally to whether or not we have enough information to make good decisions about our government. Well, here's a, here's a more, an even more salient example, my friend. We had the government of Canada uh, challenged by members of the opposition and in some of its own parties on its ethical uh, con conduct with relation to the WE scandal. And uh, as more and more layers of that onion get peeled back, uh, we're finding out that they are more than hip deep 
in this thing with their good pals, the Kielbergers. So when it comes to government uh, documents requested by government, uh, that is, members of parliament, members of the government system, uh, the, the Trudeau government gave them boxes and boxes of redacted documents. Basically, sure, you can have this, but we're going to black out every bit of information it contains, so knock yourselves out. That is perhaps the most recent federal-level example, Sean, but this ignoring of requests for information by members of the media like you and me and private citizens is just the way government does business right across Canada, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think uh, no one should think that if an opposition party came to power that they would behave any differently. Good point. Because even though... Those opposition parties really rely on freedom of information requests to find out what the government is doing. And we actually see that in McAvoy's report, one of the reasons why one of the explanations that the government has provided for some of the increases in um, no-response requests right. is that the opposition in B.C. is just requesting so much information now, even more so than the NDP did when they were in opposition. So this is a cross-party issue. Federally, if the Conservatives were in power, they would be behaving exactly the same way. And we certainly saw that when Harper was in power. Mm -hmm. So this is an issue that actually Canadians need to take responsibility for, because it's quite clear that political parties can't resist the seduction of secrecy once they actually are elected to government. So Canadians really need to push back on this secrecy, really need to assert their right to know and that's important if we're going to have a vibrant democracy in this country. Well, it's the Privacy Commissioner. It's interesting, Mr. McAvoy, uh, here in British Columbia, is our Privacy Commissioner. He's not a politician. He hasn't been elected by anybody. He's appointed to be essentially our agent uh, with the government, uh, especially when it comes to con uh, concerns regarding our personal privacy and information, and also government privacy and information. The government does have some right to privacy, Sean. We we need to emphasize uh, standing realities like cabinet confidentiality, for example. Right, but, uh, you know, I would actually push back on that a bit. Okay. What we're saying with cabinet confidentiality is that the people have no right to know what goes on in what is the principal decision-making body in the land. That doesn't seem right to me. I think it infantilizes the public. Because what are we really protecting here? We're protecting differences of opinion in cabinet. Right. Among people who generally agree with one another. Why is it so wrong that Canadians and British Columbians should have a right to know if there is an internal disagreement in government? That would seem to be a reasonable thing. And then they could actually get more information about why government is actually making the decisions that it is and the various different options that were under consideration. The only reason why you wouldn't want to do that is if you feel, A, that the public is too immature to be able to understand that good people can have differences of opinion with one another. And I suppose the other reason is, is that it could be used as a weapon of partisanship. And that's unfortunate. But I think we're not going to get out of the situation that we're in right now if we keep on increasing the partisanship in our society 
and in our politics. Well, that's course, really one of the things that's killing government. Well, and of course, the, the, the argument for cabinet solidarity is, 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 is obvious. The government moves in lockstep. When we enact, exactly. legis- when we enact legislation, it becomes, uh, it's because we agree that it's essential. And if, right. if in the process of coming to the agreement that it's essential, there are a few arguments, which was, generally speaking, pretty healthy stuff, Sean. Uh, the yeah. public the public doesn't have a right to know that because all they need to know, uh, this is from the government, all they need to know is their government is united in presenting this piece of legislation full stop. Absolutely, and I think that's a problem, right? Because it means that, for the most part, people like you and I, people who are listening on the radio right now, really don't know what goes on in government Mm -hmm. Um, because everything that happens in the legislature is a fait accompli. The government has already made up its mind, and because, generally speaking, it has a majority in the legislature, it gets to do whatever it wants. Yeah, let me quote. That's not democracy. Yeah, let me quote the privacy commissioner again, and this report's only a few days old. This is Michael McAvoy. Quote, they simply ignore the rules. This is a systemic issue because the public begins to lose faith in the system when the government refuses to play by the rules. And so saying basically reform to the Freedom of Information and Personal Privacy Act is where it has to start. Absolutely. But I think there's a larger cultural reform that has to take place here. And I'm not talking about a cultural reform in government. Yes, we need that. But part of the problem is, is that our whole entire political system isn't actually set up to involve the public between elections. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the problem, right? So if the, the system is set up so you don't involve the public between elections, and they have very limited power, thanks to party discipline, to actually influence their representatives between elections, then what is the point of paying attention to what government is doing, and what is the point of being curious about what government is doing? So what we really need is we really need a more robust political culture in this country that creates demand for information about what government is doing. Government gets away with this because there is no demand, right? Or there isn't enough of a demand. There isn't the public pressure saying, look, you need to behave like a democracy. Mm-hmm. And we need more of that in this country. And the word, of course, is accountability. And, of course, they all profess to be uh, as accountable as, as the day is long. And you vote for us and we'll be even more accountable than those guys. Can you imagine yeah. that accountability? And, of course, once elected, accountability is the first thing that disappears. According to the Privacy Commissioner of British Columbia, our government in Victoria is breaking the law because they're extending information request times beyond well beyond where they say they should go. This uh, needs to be changed. It's a culture. It's uh, ingrained in the political culture. Our guest, Sean Holman, a a journalism professor at Mount Mount Royal University in Calgary, says uh, it's considered to be uh, basically a perk of office by governments at at all levels, isn't it, Michael? uh, Sorry, Sean, the the ability to control the flow of information is a part of being in power power and they they see that as a privilege they and of course they 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 exercise the power by breaking the law and extending information requests forever in a day and that all just that's a perk of being in office isn't it 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 really is actually and that's a really good point there was actually a 
study that was done by the Privy Council Office, uh, by the federal government, back in the 70s, when the idea of freedom of information, the idea of a law that would allow Canadians to actually access government files that they wouldn't normally have access to, started being debated. And what that report said was that there actually is a built-in confidentiality. These are the report's own words in our political system, and that's really the thing that is getting in the way of the public's right to know. And the sad thing is, is that in the 50-some-odd years since that report came out, and it was a secret report, by the way. Of course, yes. Um, nothing much has changed. Yeah. What happened was we essentially created these laws, freedom of information laws, that were grafted onto an already secretive system, and we didn't do anything to change that system itself. So it's no wonder that privacy and information commissioners like Michael McAvoy keep on releasing these kinds of reports year after year, recommending changes, encouraging government to do better, encouraging less secrecy and more openness, and we just don't see any change. This has been the story of freedom of information in Canada ever since we got those laws in the early 80s. Uh, good it's point. really sad. Yeah, it is. Uh, we did open up the phone lines. Uh, Bob in Chilliwack is joining us with some thoughts on, uh, well, accountability and information and access to same. Bob, any thoughts uh, further to what Sean's saying here on the radio? Well, he said that last year, and that was brought to light uh, under the SNC thing. And I might have been actually Sean Holman, in fact, that said this was uh, uh, partially a flaw that we've installed in our system. Mm-hmm. The fact that a major part of the oath when you take office is all about confidentiality, uh, that secrecy is, is designed in. It doesn't appear to be constitutional. He might be able to answer this question. Is there a way to uninstall that? without offending the Constitution, either 1867 or the Charter as we see it today, and and, uh, find a way, if you will, to dissolve most of that stuff. Because if you notice during SNC, they extended confidentiality way beyond even the... uh, the most uh, free of imagination could have extended to because of a connection to a connection to a connection. In sure. fact, the RCMP weren't even allowed to look at what was going on in the public service and how that reached the prime minister, for example, by confidentiality this and confidentiality that, when it should have never been ex- extended, at least out of cabinet. Well, it's a good point and a great question. Sean, over to you. Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. Um, and I don't actually think there's much getting in the way of us being a little bit more open. You may remember, uh, Sterling, that back when Gordon Campbell first came to power in British Columbia, he actually had something called open cabinet. Yes. Now, a lot of people derided that derided that, and, and mocked it and said, you know, look, these are just stage shows. And I, I think the unfortunate thing is that could have also been the beginning of maybe a cultural change. Put more of these discussions out into the open, ensure that people are talking openly, get them used to the idea. Um, and, you know, in freedom of information laws, we could actually build in a requirement that cabinet documents are actually released at a, after a certain period of time. That's right. been proposed before. So there's really actually nothing getting in the way of opening this up other than the fact of tradition, other than the fact 
of convention, other than the fact that governments really like this idea of secrecy and don't really want to give it up. Well, yeah, because the question was phrased in essentially the the the, the, the uh, of well, do we need to amend? Can we can we fix this without amending the Constitution? Uh, oh yeah, it, it's I I agree that yes is the answer, but that's the way Canadians feel about this. It's so ingrained into the, this this whole government secrecy concept. Uh, it, we're we're at the point where, gosh, we'd, we'd even have to change the Constitution just to get some more accountability, which, of course, is nonsense, but it's a big win for political parties, isn't it? Yeah, but it's an, it's an understandable feeling, right? Because keep on getting told how essential cabinet confidentiality actually is right. and how essential cabinet solidarity actually is, because whenever this conversation comes up, you always hear um, someone from government pushing back on those grounds. And if it's not someone from government, sometimes it's even someone from opposition, right? So, uh, you know, I think we have gotten used to the idea that this can't be changed, right? That this is always the way it has been, and it is always the way it must be. And we do actually see other uh, governments with Westminster uh, style uh, political systems that are far more open than the one that we have right now. So again, there's an election dance being done, certainly being readied, and we know it'll be at least a year uh, uh, by law uh, next October. It could be much earlier than that. And, and you know, they're both going to just look earnestly at us in, 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 from their, their podiums, and they're going to promise accountability uh, like you've never seen before. We're going to be so open and transparent, blah, blah, blah. And we can actually just, I mean, if we start laughing at promises like that, especially in a in, uh, live forums that might help it really has become a bit of a joke yeah and i i think we just need to understand our political system a bit better than we do because if we truly understood how much more secretive canada is than say even the united states then maybe we might uh pay a little bit more attention to this particular issue yeah i mean it's going to be difficult in british columbia i think to raise the issue of secrecy to raise the issue of government accountability because in the main this government has done a fairly good job and oftentimes we see um, the most traction around the accountability issue, around the openness issue, and we when may have, government is really screwing up. That's right. We may have an election dance of our own in B.C. here, all things being that's equal, right. before the end of the year. Got to leave it there, Sean. Great to speak to you again. It's been forever. Let's do this again sometime soon. That would be lovely. Sean Holman at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.